Welcome to 1001 Stories for the Road and the final chapters of Mark Twain's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. That was all fixed. So then we went away and went to the rubbish pile in the backyard where they kept the old boots and rags and pieces of bottles and wore out tin things and all such truck and scratched around and found an old tin wash pan and stopped up the holes as well as we could to bake the pie in and took it down cellar and stole it full of flour and started for breakfast and found a couple of shingle nails that Tom said would be handy for a prisoner to scrabble his name and sorrows on dungeon walls with and dropped one of them in Aunt Sally's apron pocket which was hanging on a chair and the other we stuck in the band of Uncle Silas's hat which was on the bureau because we heard the children say their pa and ma was going to the runaway slave's house this morning and then went to breakfast and Tom dropped the pewter spoon in Uncle Silas's coat pocket, and Aunt Sally wasn't come yet, so we had to wait a little while. And when she come, she was hot and red and cross, and we couldn't hardly wait for the blessing. And then she went to sluicing out coffee with one hand and cracking the handiest child's head with her thimble with the other, and says, I've hunted high and I've hunted low, and it does beat all what has become of your other shirt. My heart fell down amongst my lungs and livers and things, and a hard piece of corn crust started down my throat after it, and got met on the road with a cough, and was shot across the table, and took one of the children in the eye, and curled him up like a fishing worm, and let a cry out of him the size of a war-hoop. And Tom, he turned kinder blue around the gills, and it all amounted to a considerable state of things for about a quarter of a minute or as much as that, and I would have sold out for half price if there was a bidder. But after that, we was all right again. It was the sudden surprise that knocked us so kind of cold. Uncle Silas, he says, It's most uncommon curious. I can't understand it. I know perfectly well I took it off, because, because you hain't got but one on. Just listen at the man. I know you took it off, and know it by a better way than your wool-githerin' memory, too, because it was on the clothesline yesterday. I seen it there myself. "'But it's gone. That's the long and short of it. "'And you'll just have to change to a red flannel one "'till I can get time to make a new one. "'And it'll be the third I've made in two years. "'It just keeps a body on the jump to keep you in shirts. "'And whatever you do manage to do with them all "'is more than I can make out. "'A body would think you would learn "'to take some sort of care of them at your time of life.' "'I, I know it, Sally. I'd do all I can. "'But it oughtn't to be altogether my fault, "'because, you know,' I don't see them, nor have nothing to do with them, except when they're on me, and I don't believe I've ever lost one of them off of me. Well, it ain't your fault if you haven't, Silas. You'd have done it if you could, I reckon. And the shirt ain't all that's gone another. There's a spoon gone, and that ain't all. There was ten, and now there's only nine. The calf got the shirt, I reckon, but the calf never took the spoon, that's certain. Why, what else is gone, Sally? "'There's six candles gone. That's what. "'The rats could have got the candles. "'And I reckon they did. "'I wonder they don't walk off with the whole place, "'the way you're always going to stop their holes and don't do it. "'And if they weren't fools, they'd sleep in your hair, Silas. "'You'd never find out. "'But you can't lay the spoon on the rats. "'And that much I know for sure. "'Well, Sally, I'm in fault, and I acknowledge it. "'I've been remiss, but I won't let tomorrow go by "'without stopping up them holes.' "'Oh, I wouldn't hurry. Next year will do.' 
Matilda Angelina Arminta Phelps. Whack comes the thimble, and the child snatches her claws out of the sugar bowl without fooling around any. Just then the servant woman steps onto the passage and says, Mrs., there's a sheet gone. A sheet gone? Well, for the land's sake. I'll stop up them holes today, says Uncle Silas, looking sorrowful. Oh, do shut up. Suppose rats took the sheet. Where's it gone, Liz? Class to goodness, I hate no notion, Miss Sally. She was on the clothesline yesterday, but it's done gone now. She ain't dead no more. Well, I reckon the world is coming to an end. I never seen the beat of it in all my born days. A shirt, and a sheet, and a spoon, and six ca- Missus, came the sound of a young servant. There's a brass candlestick missing. Well, now Aunt Sally was just a boiling. I began to lay for a chance. I reckoned I would sneak out and go for the woods till the weather moderated. She kept a raging right along, running her insurrection all by herself, and everybody else mighty meek and quiet. And at last Uncle Silas, looking kind of foolish, fishes up that spoon out of his pocket. She stopped, with her mouth open and her hands up. And as for me, I wished I was in Jerusalem or somewheres, not here. But not long, because she says, It's just as I expected. So you had it in your pocket all the time. And like as not, you've got the other things there, too. Now, how'd it get there? I really don't know, Sally. He says, kind of apologizing. Or you know I'd tell. I was a-studying over my text in Acts 17 before breakfast. And I reckon I put it in there, not noticing. Meaning to put my testament in. And it must be so, because my testament ain't in it. "'But I'll go and see. "'And if the testament is where I had it, "'I'll know I didn't put it in, "'and that'll show that I laid the testament down "'and took up the spoon, and... "'Oh, for the land's sake, give the body a rest. "'Go along now, the whole kit and caboodle of you, "'and don't come nigh me again "'till I've got back my peace of mind.' "'I'd have heard her if she'd have said it to herself, "'let alone speaking it out, "'and I'd have got up and obeyed her "'if I'd have been dead.' As we was passing through the setting room, the old man he took up his hat, and the shingle nail fell out on the floor, and he just merely picked it up and laid it on the mantel shelf, and never said nothing, and went out. Tom seen him do it, and remembered about the spoon, and says, Well, it ain't no use to send things by him no more. He ain't reliable. Then he says, But he done us a good turn with the spoon anyway, without knowing it, and so we'll go and do him one without him knowing it. We'll stop up as rat holes. There was a noble good lot of them down in the cellar. It took us a whole hour, but we'd done the job tight and good and shipshape. Then we heard steps on the stairs and blowed out our light and hid. And here comes the old man with a candle in one hand and a bundle of stuff in the other, looking as absent-minded as year before last. He went a-mooning around, first to one rat hole and then the other, till he'd been to them all. Then he stood about five minutes, "'picking tallow drip up off his candle and thinking. "'Then he turns off slow and dreamy towards the stairs, saying, "'Well, for the life of me, I can't remember when I done it. "'I could show her now that I weren't to blame on account of the rats. "'Ah, never mind. Let it go. I reckon it wouldn't do no good.' "'And so he went on a-mumbling up the stairs, and then we left. "'He was a mighty nice old man, and always is.' Tom was a good deal bothered about what to do for a spoon, but he said we'd got to have it, 
so he took a think. When he ciphered it out, he told me how he was to do it. Then we went and waited around the spoon basket till we seen Aunt Sally coming. And then Tom went to counting the spoons and laying them out to one side, and I slid one of them up my sleeve, and Tom says, Why, Aunt Sally, there ain't but nine spoons yet. And she says, Go along your play. Don't bother me. I know better. I counted them myself. Well, I've counted them twice, Auntie. I can't make but nine. She looked all out of patience, but of course she come to count. Anybody would. I declare to gracious that ain't but nine, she says. Why, what in the world? Plague, take the things. I'll count them again. So I slipped back the one I had, and when she got done counting, she says, Hang the troubles and rubbish. There's ten now. And she looked huffy and bothered both. But Tom says, Well, auntie, I don't think there's ten. You numbskull. You just stood there and watched me count them. I know, but, well, I'll count them again. So I smooched one, and they came out nine, same as the other time. Well, she was in a tearing way, just a trembling all over she was so mad. So she counted and counted till she got that addled, she'd start to count in the basket for a spoon sometimes. And so, three times they come out right, and three times they come out wrong. Then she grabbed up the basket and slammed it across the house and knocked the cat galley west. And she said, clear out and let her have some peace. And if we come bothering around her again betwixt that and dinner, she'd skin us. So we had the odd spoon and dropped it in her apron pocket while she was giving us our sailing orders, and Jim got it all right, along with her shingle nail, before noon. And Jim got it all right, along with her shingle nail, before noon. We was very well satisfied with this business, and Tom allowed it was worth twice the trouble it took, because he said, now she could never count them spoons twice alike again to save her life, and wouldn't believe she'd counted them right if she did and said after that she'd about counted her head off for the next three days. He judged she'd give it up and offer to kill anybody that wanted her to ever count them any more. So we put the sheet back on the line that night, and stole out of her closet, and kept on putting it back and stealing it again for a couple of days till she didn't know how many sheets she had any more. And she didn't care, and wasn't going to bully-rag the rest of her soul about it, and wouldn't count them again not to save her life. She'd rather die first. So we was all right now, as to the shirt, and the sheet, and the spoon, and the candles, by the help of the calf, and the rats, and the mixed-up counting, and as to the candlestick, it warn't no consequence. It will blow over by and by. But that pie was a job. We had no end of trouble with that pie. We fixed it up away down in the woods, and cooked it there, and we got it done at last, and very satisfactory, too, but not all in one day and we had to use up three washpans full of flour before we got through. And we got burnt pretty much all over in places, and eyes put out with the smoke. Because, you see, we didn't want nothing but a crust, and we couldn't prop it upright. And she would always cave in. But, of course, we thought of the right way at last, which was to cook the latter, too, in the pie. So then we laid in with Jim the second night, and tore up the sheet all in little strings, and twisted them together. And long before daylight we had a lovely rope that you could even hang a person with. We let on it took nine months to make it. And in the forenoon we took it down in the woods, but it wouldn't go into the pie. Being made of a whole sheet, that way, there was rope enough for forty pies, if we'd have wanted them, and plenty left over for soup or sausage, 
or anything you choose. We could have had a whole dinner, but we didn't need it. All we needed was just enough for the pie, and so we throwed the rest away. We didn't cook none of the pies in the wash pan, afraid the solder would melt. But Uncle Silas, he had a noble brass warning pan, which he thought considerable of, because it belonged to one of his ancestors with a long wooden handle that came over from England with William the Conqueror in the Mayflower, one of them early ships, and was hid up away garret with a lot of other old pots and things that was valuable. Not on account of being any account, because they weren't, but on account of them being relics, you know. And we snaked her out, private, and took her down there, but she failed on the first pies, because we didn't know how. But she come up smiling on the last one. We took and lined her with dough, and set her in the coals, and loaded her up with rag rope, and put on a dough roof, and shut down the lid, and put hot embers on top, and stood off five foot with the long handle cool and comfortable. And in fifteen minutes, she turned out a pie that was satisfaction to look at. But the person that ate it would want to fetch a couple of kegs of toothpicks along, for if that rope ladder wouldn't cramp him down to this business, I don't know nothing what I'm talking about, and lay him in enough stomach ache to last him till next time, too. Nat didn't look when we put the witch pie in Jim's pan, and we put the three tin plates in the bottom of the pan under the vittles, and so Jim got everything all right, and as soon as he was by himself, he busted into the pie and hid the rope ladder inside of his straw tick, and scratched some marks on a tin plate, and throwed it out the window hole. Chapter 38 Making them pens was a distressed, tough job, and so was the saw. And Jim allowed the inscription was going to be the toughest of all. That's the one which the prisoner has to scribble on the wall. But he had to have it. Tom said he got to. There weren't no case of a state prisoner not scrabbling his inscription to leave behind. And his coat of arms. Look at Lady Jane Grey, he says. Look at Guilford Dudley. Look at old Northumberland. Why, Huck, I suppose it is considerable trouble. What are you going to do? How are you going to get around it? Jim got to do his inscription and coat of arms. They all do. And Jim says, Why, Mars Tom, I ain't got no coat of arm. I ain't got nothing but dish here old shirt. And you knows I got to keep the journal on that. Oh, you don't understand, Jim. A coat of arms is very different. Well, I says, Jim's right anyway. "'when he says he ain't got no coat of arms, because he ain't. "'I reckon I know dat,' Tom says. "'But you bet he'll have one before he goes out of this, "'because he's going out right, "'and there ain't going to be no flaws in his record.' "'So whilst me and Jim fouled away at the pens on a brick bat apiece, "'Jim a-making his own out of the brass, "'and I'm making mine out of the spoon, "'Tom set to work to think out the coat of arms. "'By and by he said he'd struck so many good ones, "'he didn't hardly know which to take.' "'but there was one which he reckoned he'd decide on, "'and he says, "'On the scoochin' we'll have a bend o'er in the Dexter base, "'a saltier Murray in the fess, "'with a dog, a cochant for common charge, "'and under his foot a chain in battle for slavery, "'with a chevron vert in a chief engrailed, "'and three invected lines on a field azure, "'with the nombral points rampant on the dancehead indented, "'a crest, a runaway slave, "'Sable, with his bundle over his shoulders, on a bar sinister, "'and a couple of ghouls for supporters, which is you and me. "'Motto, Maggiore Fretta, Minore Otto. "'Got it out of a book. "'Means the more haste, the less speed. "'Gee, 
"'Willikins,' I says. "'But what does the rest of it mean?' "'We ain't got no time to bother over that,' he says. "'We got to dig in like all get out.' "'Well, anyway,' I says. "'What's some of it? What's a fess?' "'A fess? A fess? You don't need to know what a fess is. "'I'll show him how to make it when he gets to it.' "'Shucks, Tom,' I says. "'I think you might tell a person. "'What's a bar sinister?' "'I don't know, but he's got to have it. "'All the nobility does.' "'That was just Tom's way. "'If it didn't suit him to explain a thing to you, "'he wouldn't do it. "'You might pump at him a week. "'That wouldn't make no difference. "'He'd got all that coat of arms business fixed, "'so now he started in to finish up the rest of that part of the work, "'which was to plan out a mournful inscription. "'Said Jim got to have one, like they all done. "'He made up a lot and wrote them out on a paper "'and read them off so.' One, here a captive heart busted. Two, here a poor prisoner, forsook by the world and friends, fretted his sorrowful life. Three, here a lonely heart broke, and a worn spirit went to its rest after thirty-seven years of solitary captivity. Four, here, homeless and friendless, after thirty-seven years of bitter captivity, perished a noble stranger, natural son of Louis the Fourteenth. Tom's voice trembled whilst he was reading them, and he most broke down. When he got done, he couldn't no way make up his mind which one for Jim to scrabble onto the wall. They was all so good. But at last he allowed he'd let him scrabble them all on. Jim said it'd take him a year to scrabble such a lot of truck onto the log with a nail. He didn't know how to make letters besides. But Tom said he'd block them out for him, and then he wouldn't have nothing to do but just follow the lines. And then pretty soon he says... Come to think, the logs ain't gonna do. They don't have log walls in a dungeon. We got to dig the inscriptions into a rock. We'll fetch a rock. Jim said the rock was worse than the logs. He said it would take him such a pison long time to dig them into a rock, he would never get out. But Tom said he'd let me help him do it. Then he took a look to see how me and Jim was getting along with the pens. It was most pesky, tedious, hard work, and slow and didn't give my hands no show to get well of the sores, and we didn't seem to make no headway hardly. So Tom says, I know how to fix it. we got to have a rock with a coat of arms and mournful inscriptions, and we can kill two birds with that same rock. There's a gaudy big grindstone down at the mill, and we'll smooch it and carve the things on it, and we'll take it and carve the things on it and file out the pens and the saw on it too. It weren't no slouch of an idea, and it weren't no slouch of a grindstone, nother. But we allowed we'd tackle it. It weren't quite midnight yet, so we cleared out for the mill, leaving Jim at work. We smooched the grindstone and set out to roll her home, but it was a most nation-tough job. Sometimes, to do what we could, we couldn't keep her from falling over, and she come mighty near mashing us every time. Tom said she was going to get one of us, sure, before we got through. We got her halfway, and then we was plumb played out, and most drowned with sweat. We see it weren't no use. We got to go and fetch Jim. So he raised up his bed and slid the chain off the bed leg and wrapped it round and round his neck, and we crawled out through our hole and down there, and Jim and me laid into that grindstone and walked her along like nothing, and Tom superintended. He could out-superintend any boy I ever seen. He knowed how to do everything. Our hole was pretty big, but it weren't big enough to get a grindstone through. But Jim, he took the pick, 
and soon made it big enough. Then Tom marked out them things on it with the nail, and set Jim to work on them, with the nail for a chisel, and an iron bolt from the rubbish in the lean-to for a hammer, and told him to work till the rest of his candle quit on him, and then he could go to bed, and hide the grindstone under his straw tick, and sleep on it. Then we helped him fix his chain back on the bed leg, and was ready for bed ourselves. But Tom thought of something, and says, "'You got any spiders in here, Jim?' "'No, sir. Thanks to goodness I ain't, Mars Tom. "'All right, we'll get you some. "'But bless you, honey, I don't want none. "'I feared them. "'I'd just as soon have rattlesnakes around.' "'Tom thought a minute or two and says, yeah, "'That's a good idea. "'I reckon it's been done. "'It must have been done. "'Stands to reason. "'It's a good prime idea. "'Where could you keep it?' "'Keep what, Mars Tom? "'Why, a rattlesnake.' "'The goodness gracious alive, Mars Tom. "'What if there was a rattlesnake to come in here? "'I'd take him bust right out through that log wall, I would, with my head. "'Why, Jim, you wouldn't be afraid of it after a little. "'You could tame it.' "'Tame it?' "'Yeah, easy enough. "'Every animal's grateful for kindness and petting, "'and they wouldn't think of hurting a person that pets them. "'Any book will tell you that. "'You try, that's all I ask. "'Just try for two or three days. "'Why, you can get him so in a little while that he'll love you.' "'and sleep with you, and he won't stay away from you a minute, "'and he'll let you wrap him round your neck "'and put his head in your mouth. "'Please, Mars Tom, don't talk so. "'I can't stand it.' "'He let me shove his head in my mouth for a favor, ain't it? "'I lay he'd wait a powerful long time for I'd have asked him. "'And more than that, I don't want him to sleep with me.' "'Jim, don't act so foolish. "'A prisoner's got to have some kind of dumb pet, "'and if a rattlesnake ain't ever been tried, why, there's more glory to be gained in your being the first to ever try it than any other way you could think of to have it save your life. Why, Mars Tom, I don't want no such glory. Snake take and bite Jim's chin off? Then where is the glory? No, sir, I don't want no such doings. Blame it, can you try? I only want you to try. You needn't keep it up if it don't work. But the trouble all done if the snake bite me while I was trying him, Mars Tom. I's willing to tackle most anything. It ain't unreasonable. But if you and Huck fetches a rattlesnake in here for me to tame, I's going to leave. That's sure. Well, then, let it go. Let it go if you're so bullheaded about it. We can get you some garter snakes, and you can tie some buttons on their tails and let on their rattlesnakes. I reckon that'll have to do. I can stand them, Mars Tom, but blame if I couldn't get along without them. I never know before it was so much bother and trouble to be a prisoner. Well, it ain't always is when it's done right. You got any rats around here? No, sir. I ain't seen none. All right, we'll get you some rats. Mars Tom, I don't want no rats. They the dad blame his critters disturb a body and rustle round over him and bite his feet when he's trying to sleep I ever see. No, sir. Give me, give me your garter snakes. If I's got to have them, I ain't got no use for them, scarcely. But, Jim, you got to have them. They all do. So don't make no more fuss about it. Prisoners ain't ever without rats. There ain't no instance of it. And they train them and pet them and learn them tricks. And they got to be sociable as flies. But you got to play music to them. Next night we struck a picture, which Tom drawed in blood of a skull and crossbones on the front door. And next night another one of a coffin on the back door. I never seen a family in such a sweat. 
"'They couldn't have been worse scared "'if the place had been full of ghosts "'laying for them behind everything "'and under the beds and shivering through the air. "'If a door banged, Aunt Sally, she jumped and said, "'Ouch! "'If anything fell, she jumped and said, "'Ouch! "'If you happened to touch her when she weren't noticing, "'she done the same. "'She couldn't face no way and be satisfied, "'because she allowed there was something behind her every time. "'So she was always a-whirling around sudden and saying, "'Ouch!' "'And before she'd get two-thirds around, "'she'd whirl back again and say it again. "'And she was afraid to go to bed. "'But she dastn't set up. "'In the midst of trying to create confusion, "'we had left our first letter saying "'that there was a gang of desperados in the area, "'and everybody was on their tiptoes. "'So the very next morning at the streak of dawn, "'we got another letter ready, "'and was wondering what we better do with it. "'They was going to have a servant on watch, "'both doors, all night. "'Tom, he went down the lightning rod to spy around, "'and the servant at the back door was asleep, "'and he stuck the letter in the back of his neck "'and come back. "'This letter said, "'Don't betray me. "'I wish to be your friend. "'There's a desperate gang of cutthroats "'from over in the Indian Territory "'gonna steal your runaway slave tonight, "'and they've been trying to scare you "'so you'll stay in the house and not bother them. "'But I've got religion, "'and wish to quit it and lead an honest life again, "'and will betray the hellish design. "'They will sneak down from Northards "'along the fence at midnight, "'exact with a false key, "'and go in that slave's cabin to get him. "'I am to be off a piece "'and blow a tin horn if I see any danger. "'But instead of that, I will buy like a sheep "'as soon as they get in, and not blow at all. "'Then whilst they're getting his chains loose, "'you slip there and lock them in, "'and you can kill them at your leisure. "'Don't do anything but just the way I'm telling you. "'If you do, they'll suspicion something "'and raise whoop jamboreeho. "'I do not wish any reward "'but to know I've done the right thing. "'Signed, an unknown friend. Chapter 39 We was feeling pretty good after breakfast and took my canoe and went over to the river fishing with a lunch and had a good time and took a look at the raft and found her all right and got home late to supper and found them in such a sweat and worry they didn't know which end they was standing on and made us go right off to bed the minute we was done supper and wouldn't tell us what the trouble was and never let on a word about the new letter but didn't need to "'cause we knowed as much about it as anybody did, "'and as soon as we were half up the stairs "'and her back was turned, "'we slid for the cellar cupboard "'and loaded up a good lunch "'and took it up to our room and went to bed "'and got up about half past eleven. "'And Tom put on Aunt Sally's dress that he stole "'and he was going to start with the lunch, but says, "'Where's the butter?' "'I laid out a hunk of it,' I says, "'on a piece of corn pone. "'Well, you left it laid out there. "'It ain't here.' "'We can get along without it,' I says. "'Yeah, we can get along with it, too,' he says. "'Just you slide down cellar and fetch it, "'and then mosey right down the lightning rod and come along. "'I'll go and stuff the straw into Jim's clothes "'to represent his mother in disguise "'and be ready to buy like a sheep "'and shove soon as you get there.' "'So out he went, and down cellar went I. "'The hunk of butter, "'big as a person's fist, was where I'd left it. "'so I took up the slab of corn pone with it on "'and blowed out my light "'and started up the stairs very stealthy "'and got up to the main floor all right. "'But here comes Aunt Sally with a candle, "'and I clapped the truck in my hat "'and clapped my hat on my head. "'And the next second she seen me and she says, "'You been down cellar?' "'Yes, am "'What you been doing down there?' "'Nothing.' "'Nothing? "'No, am "'Well, then, what possessed you to go down there this time of night?' "'I don't know, am "'You don't know?' "'Don't answer me that way, Tom. "'I want to know what you've been doing down there.' "'I ain't been doing a single thing. "'Aunt Sally, I hope to gracious if I have.' 
I reckon she'd let me go now, as a general thing she would. But I suppose there was so many strange things going on, she was just in a sweat about every little thing that weren't yardstick straight. So she says, very decided, You just march into that setting room and stay there till I come. You've been up to something you got no business to, and I'll lay I'll find out what it is before I'm done with you. So she went away as I opened the door and walked into the setting room. My, but there was a crowd there. Fifteen farmers, and every one of them had a gun. I was most powerful sick, and slunk to a chair and sat down. They was setting around, some of them talking a little in a low voice, and all of them fidgety and uneasy, but trying to look like they weren't. But I knowed they was, because they was always taking off their hats, and then putting them back on, and scratching their heads, and changing their seats, and fumbling with their buttons. I wasn't easy myself, but I didn't take my hat off all the same. I did wish Aunt Sally would come and get done with me, and lick me if she wanted to, and let me get away and tell Tom how we'd overdone this thing, and what a thundering hornet's nest we'd got ourselves into, so we could stop fooling around straight off and clear out with Jim before these rips got out of patience and come for us. At last she come and begun to ask me questions, but I couldn't answer them straight. I didn't know which end of me was up, because these men was in such a fidget now that some was wanting to start right now and lay for them desperados, and saying it weren't but a few minutes to midnight, and others was trying to get them to hold on and wait for the sheep signal. And here was Auntie pegging away at the questions, and me a-shaking all over and ready to sink down in my tracks I was that scared. And the place getting hotter and hotter, and the butter beginning to melt and run down my neck and behind my ears. And pretty soon when one of them says, I'm for going and getting in the cabin first, and right now, and catching them when they come. I most dropped, and a streak of butter come a-trickling down my forehead, and Aunt Sally, she seen's it, and turns white as a sheet and says, For the land's sake, what is the matter with this child? He's got the brain fever as sure as you're born, and they're oozing out. And everybody runs to see, and she snatches off my hat, and out comes the bread and what was left of the butter. And she grabs me and hugs me and says, Oh, what a turn you gave me, and how glad and grateful I am it ain't no worse, for luck's against us, and it never rains but it pours, and when I see that truck I thought we'd lost you, for I knowed by the color and all it was just like your brains would be if... Dear, dear, why didn't you tell me that was what you'd have been down there for? I wouldn't have cared. Now clear out the bed, and don't let me see no more of you till morning. I was upstairs in a second, and down the lightning rod in another one, and shinning through the dark for the lean-to. I couldn't hardly get my words out, I was so anxious. But I told Tom as quick as I could, we got to jump for it now, and not a minute to lose. The house full of men, yonder, with guns. His eyes just blazed, and he says, No, is that so? Ain't it bully? Why, Huck, if I was to do it over again, I'll bet I could fetch two hundred. If we could pull it off to... Hurry, I says. Where's Jim? Right at your elbow. If you reach out your arm, you can touch him. He's dressed, and everything's ready. Now we'll slide out and give the sheep signal. But then we heard the tramp of men come into the door, and heard them begin to fumble with the padlock, and heard a man say, I told you we'd be too soon. They haven't come. The door's locked. Here, I'll lock some of you into the cabin, and you lay for them in the dark, and kill them when they come, and the rest scatter around a piece, and listen if you can hear them coming. So in they come, but couldn't see us in the dark and most trod on us whilst we was hustling to get under the bed. But we got under all right, 
and out through the hole, swift but soft. Jim first, me next, and Tom last, which was according to Tom's orders. Now he was in the lean-to, and heard trampings close by outside. So we crept to the door, and Tom stopped us there, and put his eye to the crack, but couldn't make out nothing it was so dark, and whispered, and said he'd listen for the steps to get further, and when he nudged us, Jim must glide out first, and him last. So he set his ear to the crack and listened, and listened, and listened, and the steps were scraping around out there all the time. At last he nudged us, and we slid out, and stooped down, not breathing, and not making the least noise, and slipped stealthy toward the fence in engine file, and got to it all right, and me and Jim over it. But Tom's britches catched fast on a splitter on the top rail, and then he heard the steps a-coming, so he had to pull loose, which snapped the splinter and made a noise. And as he dropped in our tracks and started, somebody sings out, Who's that? Answer, or I'll shoot. But we didn't answer. We just unfurled our heels and shoved. Then there was a rush and a bang, bang, and bullets fairly whizzed around us. We heard them sing out, Here they are. They're breaking for the river. After them, boys. Turn loose the dogs. So here they come, full tilt. We could hear them because they wore boots and yelled. But we didn't wear no boots and didn't yell. We was in the path to the mill, and when they got pretty close on to us, we dodged into the bush and let them go by, and then dropped in behind them. They'd had all the dogs shut up so they wouldn't scare off the robbers, but by this time somebody let them loose, and here they come, making powwow enough for a million. But they was our dogs, so we stopped in our tracks till they catched up, and when they seen it weren't nobody but us and no excitement to offer them, they only just said howdy and tore right ahead towards the shouting and the clattering. And then we up steam again and whizzed along after them till we was nearly to the mill and then struck up through the bush to see where my canoe was tied and hopped in and pulled for dear life towards the middle of the river. But we didn't make no more noise than we was obliged to. Then we struck out, easy and comfortable, for the island where my raft was and we could hear them yelling and barking at each other all up and down the bank till we was so far away, the sounds got dim and died out. And when we stepped onto the raft, I says, Now, old Jim, you're a free man again, and bet you won't ever be a slave no more. Yeah, a mighty good job it was too, Huck. It was planned beautiful, and it is done beautiful, and there ain't nobody can get up a plan that's more mixed up and splendid than what that one was. We was all glad as we could be, but Tom was the gladdest of all, because he had a bullet in the cap of his leg. When me and Jim heard that, we didn't feel so brash as we did before. It was hurting him considerable, and bleeding, so we laid him in the wigwam and tore up one of the Duke's shirts for to bandage him. But he says, Give me the rags, I can do it myself. Don't stop now, don't fool around here. And the evasion booming along so handsome, man the sweeps and set her loose. Boys, we done it elegant. Indeed we did. I wish we'd have had the handling of Louis the Sixteenth. There wouldn't have been no son of St. Louis, ascend to heaven, wrote down in his biography. No, sir. We'd have whooped him over the border. That's what we'd have done with him. And done it just as slick as nothing at all, too. Man the sweeps. But me and Jim was consulting and thinking. And after we thought a minute, I says, Say it, Jim. So he says, 
"'Well, then, this is the way it looked to me, Huck. "'If it was him that is being set free "'and one of the boys was to get shot, would he say, "'Go on and save me. "'Never mind about a doctor for to save this one. "'Is that like Mars Tom Sawyer? "'Would he say that? "'You bet he wouldn't. "'Well, then, is Jim going to say that? "'No, sir. "'I don't budge a step out of this place without a doctor. "'Not if it's forty years.' So I told Tom I was going for a doctor. He raised a considerable row about it, but me and Jim stuck to it and wouldn't budge. So he was for crawling out and setting the raft loose himself, but we wouldn't let him. Then he gave us a piece of his mind, but it didn't do no good. So when he sees me getting the canoe ready, he says, Well then, if you're bound to go, I'll tell you the way to do it when you get to the village. Shut the door and blindfold the doctor tight and fast and make him swear to be silent as the grave and put a purse full of gold in his hand. Then take and lead him all around the back alleys and everywhere in the dark. Then fetch him here in a canoe, in a roundabout way amongst the islands, and search him and take his chalk away from him. And don't give it back to him till you get back to the village, or else he'll chalk this raft so he can find it again. It's the way they all do in the books. So I said I would, and left, and Jim was to hide in the woods when he seen the doctor coming, until he was gone again. Chapter 40 The doctor was an old man, a very nice, kind-looking old man when I got him up. I told him me and my brother was over on Spanish Island hunting yesterday afternoon and camped on a piece of raft we found, and about midnight he must, he must have kicked his gun in his dreams, for it went off and shot him in the leg, and we wanted him to go over there and fix it, and not say nothing about it, nor let anybody know, because we wanted to come home this evening and surprise the folks. Yeah, who's your folks? he says. Phelps's down yonder. Oh, he says. And after a minute, he says, How'd you say he got shot? He had a dream, I says, and it shot him. Singular dream, he says. So he lit up his lantern, got his saddlebags, and we started. But when he sees the canoe, he didn't like the look of her. Said she was big enough for one, but didn't look pretty safe for two. So I says, Oh, you needn't be afeard, sir. She carried the three of us easy enough. What three? Uh, why, uh, me and Sid and, and, and the guns. That's what I mean. Oh, he says. But he put his foot on the gunnel and rocked her and shook his head and said he reckoned he'd look around for a bigger one. But they was all locked and chained. So he took my canoe and said for me to wait till he come back or I could hunt around further. Or better yet, maybe I'd better go down home and get them ready for the surprise if I wanted to. But I said I didn't, so I told him just how to find the raft, and then he started. I struck an idea pretty soon. I says to myself, Suppose he can't fix that leg in just three shakes of a sheep's tail, as the saying is. Suppose it takes him three or four days. What are we going to do? Lay around there till he lets the cat out of the bag? No, sir, I know what I'll do. I'll wait, but when he comes back, if he says he's got to go any more... I'll get down there, too, if I swim, and we'll take and tie him and keep him and shove out down the river. And when Tom's done with him, we'll give him what it's worth, or all we got, and then let him get ashore. So when Tom's done with him, we'll pay him, or give him everything we got, and then let him get ashore. So then I crept into a lumber pile to get some sleep, and the next time I waked up, the sun was away up over my head. I shot out and went to the doctor's house, but they told me he'd gone away in the night some time or other, and weren't back yet. Well, thinks I, 
That looks powerful bad for Tom, and I'll dig out for the island right off. So away I shoved and turned the corner and nearly rammed my head in Uncle Silas's stomach. He says, Why, Tom, where you been all this time, you rascal? I ain't been nowheres, I says, only just hunting for the runaway slave. Me and Sid. Why, wherever did you go, he says. Your aunt's been mighty uneasy. She needn't, I says, because we was all right. We followed the men and the dogs, but they outrun us, and we lost them. But we thought we heard them on the water. So we got a canoe and took out after them and crossed over, but couldn't find nothing of them. So we cruised up along shore till we kind of tired and got beat out. and tied up the canoe and went to sleep, and never waked up till about an hour ago. Then we paddled over here to hear the news, and Sid's at the post office to see what he can hear, and I'm a-branching out to get something to eat for us, and then we're going home. So then we went to the post office to get Sid, but just as I suspicioned, he weren't there. So the old man, he got a letter out of the office, and we waited a while longer, but Sid didn't come. So the old man said, Come along, let Sid foot it home, or canoe it when he got done fooling around, but we would ride. I couldn't get him to let me stay and wait for Sid. He said there weren't no use in it, and I must come along and let Aunt Sally see if we was all right. When we got home, Aunt Sally was that glad to see me, she laughed and cried both, and hugged me, and give me one of them lickings of hern that don't amount to shucks, and said she'd serve Sid the same when he come. And the place was plumb full of farmers and farmers' wives to dinner, and such another clack a body never heard. Old Mrs. Hodgkins was the worst. Her tongue was a-going all the time. She says, Well, Sister Phelps, I've ransacked that air cabin over, and I believe the slave was crazy. I says to Sister Damrell, didn't I, Sister Damrell? He's crazy. Them's the very words I said. Y'all heard me, he's crazy. Everything shows it. Look at that. Air, grindstones. I want to tell me any creature in his right mind is going to scrabble all them crazy things onto a grindstone. And she went on and on and on and on. And look at that air ladder made out of rags, Sister Hotchkiss, says old Miss Danrell. What in the name of goodness could he ever want of... How in the nation did they ever get that grindstone in there, anyway? And who dug that air hole? And who? My very words, Br'er Penrod, I was a-saying. So on and on and on they went. Says I to myself, I can explain better how we come not to be in that room this morning if I got out to one side and studied over a little. So I done it. But I dasn't go far, or she'd have sent for me. And when it was late in the day, the people all went, and then I come in and told her the noise and the shouting waked me up, and Sid, and the door was locked, and we wanted to see the fun, so we went down the lightning rod, and both of us got hurt a little, and we never did want to try that again, and then I went on and told her all that I told Uncle Silas before, and then she said she'd forgive us, and maybe it was all right enough anyway, and about what a body could expect of boys, for all boys was a pretty harem-scarum lot as far as she could see, and so as long as no harm hadn't come of it, she judged she'd better put in her time being grateful we was alive and well, and she had us still, instead of fretting over what was past and done. So then she kissed me and patted me on the head and dropped into a kind of brown study, and pretty soon jumps up and says, Why, laws of mercy, it's most night, and Sid not come yet. What has become of that boy? I seen my chance, so I skips up and says, I'll run right up to town and get him. No, you won't, she says. You stay right where you are. One's enough to be lost at a time. If you ain't here to supper, your uncle'll go. 
Well, he weren't there to supper, so right after supper, Uncle went. He come back about ten, a little bit uneasy. Hadn't run across Tom's track. Aunt Sally was a good deal uneasy. But Uncle Silas, he said there weren't no occasion to be. Boys will be boys, he said, and you'll see this one turn up in the morning, all sound and right. So he had to be satisfied. But she said she'd set up for him a while anyway, and keep a light burning so he could see it. And then when I went up to bed, she come up with me and fetched her candle, and tucked me in, and mothered me so good I felt mean, and like I couldn't look her in the face. And she sat down on the bed and talked with me a long time, and said what a splendid boy I was, and didn't seem to want to ever stop talking about him, and said what a splendid boy Sid was, and didn't seem to want to ever stop talking about him, and kept asking me every now and then if I reckoned he could have got lost, or hurt, or maybe drowned, and might be laying at this minute somewhere, suffering or dead, and she not by him to help him? And so the tears would drip down silent, and I would tell her that Sid was all right, and he'd be home in the morning, sure, and she would squeeze my hand, or maybe kiss me, and tell me to say it again, and keep on saying it, cause it done her good, and she was in so much trouble. And when she was going away, she looked down in my eyes so steady and gentle, and says, The door ain't going to be locked, Tom, and there's the window and the rod, but you be good, won't you? And you won't go, for my sake? Laws knows I wanted to go bad enough to see about Tom, and was all intended to go. But after that, I wouldn't have went, not for kingdoms. But she was on my mind, and Tom was on my mind, so I slept very restless. And twice I went down the rod away in the night, and slipped around front, and seen her sitting there by her candle in the window with her eyes towards the road and tears in them. And I wished I could do something for her, but I couldn't only to swear that I would never do nothing to grieve her any more. And the third time I waked up at dawn and slid down, and she was there yet. Her candle was most out, and her old gray head was resting on her hand, and she was asleep. The Final Chapters The old man was uptown again before breakfast, but couldn't get no track of Tom. And both of them sat at the table thinking, and not saying nothing, and looking mournful and their coffee getting cold, and not eating anything. And by and by, the old man says, Did I give you the letter? What letter? The one I got yesterday out of the post office. Nah, you didn't give me no letter. Well, I must have forgot it. So he rummaged his pockets, and then went off somewheres where he had laid it down, and fetched it, and give it to her. She says, Why, it's from St. Petersburg. It's from Sis. I allowed another walk would do me good but I couldn't stir. But before she could break it open, she dropped it and run, for she seen something, and so did I. It was Tom Sawyer on a mattress, and that old doctor, and Jim, in her calico dress, with his hands tied behind him, and a lot of people. I hid the letter behind the first thing that come handy, and rushed. She flung herself at Tom, crying, and says, Oh, he's dead, he's dead, I know he's dead. And Tom, he turned his head a little, and muttered something or other, which showed he weren't in his right mind. And then she flung up her hands and says, He's alive, thank God, and that's enough. And she snatched a kiss of him, and flew for the house to get the bed ready, and scattering orders right and left at the servants and everybody else, as fast as her tongue could go, every jump of the way. I followed the men to see what they was going to do with Jim, and the old doctor and Uncle Silas followed after Tom into the house, 
The men was very huffy, and some of them wanted to hang Jim for an example to all the other slaves around there, so they wouldn't be trying to run away like Jim had done, and making such a raft of trouble, and keeping a whole family scared most to death for days and nights. But the others said, Don't do it. It wouldn't answer at all. He ain't our slave, and his corner would turn up and make us pay for him. So that cooled them down a little, because the people that's always the most anxious for to hang a slave that ain't done just right is always the very ones that ain't the most anxious to pay for him when they've got their satisfaction out of him. They cussed Jim considerable, though, and gave him a cuff or two side the head once in a while. But Jim never said nothing, and he never let on to know me. And they took him to the same cabin and put his own clothes on him and chained him again. And not to no bed leg this time, but to a big staple drove into the bottom log, and chained his hands, too, and both legs, and said he weren't to have nothing but bread and water to eat after this, till his owner come, or he was sold at auction, because he didn't come in a certain length of time, and filled up our hole, and said a couple of farmers with guns must stand watch about the cabin every night, and a bulldog tied to the door in the daytime. And about this time they was through with the job, and was tapering off with a kind of general goodbye cussing, and then the old doctor comes and takes a look and says, Don't be no rougher on him than you're obliged to, because he ain't a bad slave. When I got to where I found the boy, I could see I couldn't cut the bullet out without some help, and he weren't in no condition for me to leave to go and get help, and he got a little worse and a little worse, and after a long time he went out of his head and wouldn't let me come nigh him any more, and said if I chalked his raft he'd kill me, and no end of wild foolishness like that. "'and I see I couldn't do anything at all with him, "'so I says, "'I got to have help. "'And the minute I says it, "'out crawls this slave from nowheres "'and says he'd help, "'and he'd done it too, "'and he'd done it very well. "'Of course, I judged he must be a runaway slave, "'and there I was, "'and there I had to stick right straight "'along all the rest of the day and all night. "'It was a fix, I tell you. "'I had a couple of patients with the chills, "'and of course I'd like to run up to town and see them. "'but I dasn't, because the slave might get away, "'and then I'd be to blame. "'And yet never a skiff come close enough for me to hail. "'So there I had to stick plumb until daylight this morning. "'And I never seen a slave that was a better nuss or faithfuler. "'And yet he was risking his freedom to do it, "'and was all tired out, too. "'And I seen plain enough he'd been worked main hard lately. "'I liked him for that. "'I tell you, gentlemen, "'a man like that's worth a thousand dollars.' "'and kind treatment, too. "'I had everything I needed, "'and the boy was doing as well there "'as he'd have done at home. "'Better, maybe, because it was so quiet. "'But there I was, "'with both of them on my hands, "'and there I had to stick till about dawn this morning. "'And then some men in a skiff come by, "'and as good luck would have it, "'the slave was sitting by the pallet "'with his head propped on his knees, sound asleep. "'So I motioned them in quiet, "'and they slipped up on him "'and grabbed him and tied him "'before he knowed what he was about.' "'and we never had no trouble. "'And the boy being in a kind of flighty sleep, too. "'We muffled the oars and hitched the raft on "'and towed her over very nice and quiet, "'and the slave never made the least row "'nor said a word from the start. "'He's not a bad man, gentlemen, "'and that's what I think about him. "'And someone says, "'Well, that sounds very good, doctor. "'Then the others softened up a little, too. "'and I was mighty thankful to that old doctor "'for doing Jim that good turn. "'And I was glad it was according to my judgment of him, too, "'because I thought he had a good heart in him "'and was a good man the first time I seen him. "'Then they all agreed that Jim had acted very well 
and was deserving to have some notice took of it, and reward. So every one of them promised, right out and hearty, that they wouldn't cuss him no more. Then they come out and locked him up. I hoped they was going to say he could have one or two of the chains took off, because they was rotten heavy, or could have meat and greens with his bread and water. But they never thought of that, and I reckon it weren't the best for me to mix in. But I judged I'd get the doctor's yarn to Aunt Sally somehow or other as soon as I'd got through the breakers that was laying just ahead of me. Explanations, I mean, of how I forgot to mention about Sid being shot when I was telling how him and me put in that dreaded night of paddling around and hunting the runaway slave. But I had plenty time. Aunt Sally, she stuck to the sick room all day and all night, and every time I seen Uncle Silas mooning around, I dodged him. Next morning I heard Tom was a good deal better, and they said Aunt Sally was gone to get a nap. So I slips to the sick room, and if I found him awake, I reckon we could put up a yarn for the family that would wash. But he was sleeping, and sleeping very peaceful too, and pale, not fire-faced the way he was when he come. So I sat down and laid for him to wake. In about half an hour Aunt Sally comes gliding in, and there I was, up a stump again. She motioned me to be still, and sit down by me, and begun to whisper, and said we could all be joyful now, because all the symptoms was first-rate, and he'd been sleeping like that for ever so long, and looking better and peacefuler all the time. At ten to one he'd wake up in his right mind. So we sit there watching, and by and by he stirs a bit, and opens his eyes very natural, and takes a look and says, Hello, why, I'm at home. How's that? Where's the raft? It's all right, I says. And Jim? The same, I says. But I couldn't say it pretty brash. But he never noticed and says, Good! Now we're all right and safe. Did you tell Auntie? I was going to say yes, but she chipped in and says, About what, Sid? Why, about the way the whole thing was done. What whole thing? Why, the whole thing. They ain't but one. How we set the runaway slave free? Me and Tom? Good land! Set the... What? What's he talking about? Dear, dear, out of his head again. No, I ain't out of my head. I know all what I'm talking about. We did set him free. Me and Tom. We laid out to do it. And we done it. And we done it elegant, too. He'd got a start. "'and she never checked him up, "'just sat and stared and stared "'and let him clip along, "'and I see it weren't no use for me to put in. "'Why, honey, it cost us a power of work, "'weeks of it, hours and hours, every night, "'whilst you was all asleep, "'and we had to steal candles, "'and the sheet, and the T-shirt, "'and your dress, and spoons, and tin plates, "'and case knives, and the warming pan, "'and the grindstone, and the flour.' "'and just no end of things. "'And you can't think what work it was "'to make the saws and the pens and the inscriptions "'and one thing or another. "'And you can't think half the fun it was. "'And we had to make up the pictures of coffins and things, "'anonymous letters from robbers, "'and get up and down the lightning rod, "'and dig the hole into the cabin, "'and make the rope ladder, "'and send it in cooked up in a pie, "'and send in spoons and things to work "'in your apron pocket.' "'Mercy sakes! "'And load up the cabin with rats and snakes and so on "'for company for Jim. "'And then you kept Tom here so long with the butter in his hat 
"'that you come near spoiling the whole business, "'because the men come before we was out of the cabin, "'and we had to rush, "'and they hurt us and let drive at us, "'and I got my share, "'and we dodged out of the path and let them go by. "'And when the dogs come, "'they weren't interested in us, "'but went for the most noise. "'We got out our canoe and made for the raft, "'and was all safe, "'and Jim was a free man, "'and we'd done it all by ourselves. "'And wasn't it bully, Auntie?' "'Well, I never heard the likes of it in all my born days. "'So it was you, you little rapscallions, "'that's been making all this trouble "'and turned everybody's wits clean inside out "'and scared us all most to death. "'I have as good a notion as ever I've had in my life "'to take it out of you this very minute. "'To think, here I've been, night after night. "'You just get well once, you young scamp, "'and I'll... And I'll, and I'll lay, I'll tan the old Harry out of both of you. But Tom, he was so proud and joyful, he just couldn't hold in, and his tongue just went on, she a-chipping in and spitting fire all along, and both of them going at it at once, like a cat convention. And she says, Well, you get all the enjoyment you can out of it now, for mind, I tell you, if I catch you meddling with him again. Meddling with who? "'Tom says, dropping his smile and looking surprised. "'With who? Why, the runaway slave. Who'd you reckon?' "'Tom looks at me very grave and says, "'Tom, didn't you just tell me he was all right? "'Hasn't he got away? "'Him?' says Aunt Sally. "'The runaway slave? Deed he hasn't. "'They've got him back, safe and sound, "'and he's in that cabin again on bread and water "'and loaded down with chains.' "'till he's claimed or sold.' "'Tom rose square up in bed "'with his eye hot, "'his nostrils opening and shutting like gills, "'and sings out to me, "'There ain't no right to shut him up. "'Shove off, and don't you lose a minute. "'Turn him loose. "'He ain't no slave. "'He's as free as any creature that walks this earth.' "'What does that child mean?' "'I mean every word I say, Aunt Sally, "'and if somebody don't go, I'll go.' I knowed him all his life, and so is Tom there. Old Miss Watson died two months ago, and she was ashamed she was ever going to sell him down the river, and said so, and she set him free in her will. Then what on earth did you want to set him free for, seeing he was already free? Well, that is a question, I must say, and just like women. Why, I wanted the adventure of it, and I'd have waded neck deep in blood to... "'Goodness alive! Aunt Polly!' "'If she weren't standing right there, just inside the door, "'looking as sweet and contented as an angel half full of pie, "'I wish I may never!' "'Aunt Sally jumped for her, and most hugged the head off her, "'and cried over her, and I found a good enough place for me under the bed, "'for it was getting pretty sultry for both of us. "'Seemed to me. "'And I peeped out, and in a little while Tom's Aunt Polly shook herself loose, "'and stood there looking across at Tom over her spectacles, "'kind of grinding him into the earth, you know? "'And then she says, "'Yeah, you better turn your head away. "'I would if I was you, Tom.' "'Oh, dearie me,' says Aunt Sally. "'Is he changed so? "'Why, that ain't Tom. It's Sid. "'Tom's... What, where is Tom? "'He was here a minute ago.' "'You mean where is Huck Finn, you mean?' 
I reckon I hain't raised such a scamp as my Tom all these years not to know him when I see him. That would be pretty howdy-do. Come out from under that bed, Huck Finn. So I done it, but not feeling brash. Aunt Sally, she was one of the mixed upset-looking persons I ever seen, except one, and that was Uncle Silas, when he come in, and they told it all to him. It kind of made him drunk, as you may say, and he didn't know nothing at all the rest of the day, and preached a prayer-meeting sermon that night that gave him a rattling reputation, because the oldest man in the world couldn't have understood it. So Tom's Aunt Polly, she told all about who I was, and what, and I had to go up and tell how I was in such a tight place that when Mrs. Phelps took me for Tom Sawyer, she chipped in and says, Oh, go on and tell me, Aunt Sally. I'm used to it now, and tain't no need to change. That's when Aunt Sally took me for Tom Sawyer. I had to stand it. There weren't no other way, and I knowed he wouldn't mind, because it would be nuts for him, being a mystery, and he'd make an adventure out of it, and be perfectly satisfied. And so it turned out, and he let on to be Sid, and made things as soft as he could for me. And his Aunt Polly, she said Tom was right about old Miss Watson setting Jim free in her will. And so, sure enough, Tom Sawyer had gone and took all that trouble and bother to set a free slave free. And I couldn't ever understand before, until that minute and that talk, how he could help a body set a slave free, with his bringing up, well, Aunt Polly, she said that when Aunt Sally wrote to her that Tom and Sid had come all right and safe, she says to herself, Look at that now. I might have expected it, letting him go off that way without anybody to watch him. So now I got to go and traipse all the way down the river, eleven hundred miles, and find out what that creature's up to this time, as long as I couldn't seem to get any answer out of you about it. Why, well, I never heard nothing from you, says Aunt Sally. "'Well, I wonder. I wrote to you twice to ask you what you could mean by Sid being here.' "'Well, I never got him, sis.' Aunt Polly, she turns around slow and severe and says, "'You! Tom!' "'Well, what?' he says, kind of pettish. "'Don't you what me, you impudent thing! Hand out them letters!' "'What letters?' "'Them letters. I'll be bound. If I have to take a hold to you, I'll—' They're in the trunk. There now. And they're just the same as they was when I got them out of the office. I ain't looked into them. I ain't touched them. But I knowed they'd make trouble. And I thought if you weren't in no hurry, I'd... Well, you do need skinning. There ain't no mistake about it. And I wrote another one to tell you I was coming. And I suppose he... No, I come yesterday. I ain't read it yet, but it's all right. I've got that one. I wanted to offer to bet two dollars that she hadn't, but I reckon maybe it was just as safe not to. So, I never said nothing. Chapter The Last Our Conclusion The first time I catched Tom Private, I asked him what was his idea, time of the evasion, what it was he'd planned to do if the evasion worked all right and he managed to set a slave free that was already free before. And he said, what he had planned in his head from the start if we got Jim out all safe, was for us to run him down the river on the raft and have adventures plumb to the mouth of the river and then tell him about his being free and take him back up home on a steamboat in style and pay him for his lost time and right word ahead get out all the slaves around and have them waltz him into town with a torchlight procession and a brass band and then he'd be a hero 
and so would we. But I reckon it was about as well the way it was. So had Jim. We had Jim out of the chains in no time. And when Aunt Polly and Uncle Silas and Aunt Sally found out how good he'd helped the doctor nurse Tom, they made a heap of fuss over him and fixed him up prime and gave him all he wanted to eat and a good time and nothing to do. And we had him up to the sick room and had a high talk. And Tom give Jim $40 for being prisoner for us so patient and doing it up so good. And Jim was pleased most to death and busted out and says, Dad, now, Huck, what'd I tell you? And what I tell you up there on Jackson Island, I told you I got a hairy breast and what's the sign on it. And I told you I'd been rich once and going to be rich again. And it's come true. And here she is. Die now. Don't talk to me. Signs is signs. Mine, I tell you. I know just as well I was going to be rich again as I was standing here this minute. And then Tom, he talked along and talked along and says, Let's all three slide out of here one of these nights and get an outfit and go for howling adventures amongst the Indians over in the territory for a couple of weeks or two. And I says, all right, that suits me, but I ain't got no money for to buy the outfit, and I reckon I couldn't get none from home because it's likely Pap's been back before now and got it all away from Judge Thatcher and drunk it up. No, he ain't, Tom says. It's all there yet, $6,000 or more, and your Pap ain't ever been back since. Hadn't when I come away, anyhow. But Jim says, kind of solemn, He ain't come back no more, Huck. I says, Why, Jim? Never mind why, Huck. But he ain't coming back no more. But I kept at him. So at last he says, Don't you remember the house that was floating down the river? And there was a man in there, covered up. And I went in and uncovered him and didn't let you come in? Well, then, you can get your money when you wants it. Because that was your pap. Tom's most well now and got his bullet around his neck on a watch guard for a watch, and he's always seen what time it is. And so there ain't nothing more to write about, and I'm rotten glad of it, because if I'd have known what a trouble it was to make a book, I wouldn't have tackled it, and ain't it going to no more. But I reckon I got to light out for the territory ahead of the rest, because that Sally, she's going to adopt me and civilize me. And I can't stand it. I've been there before. The end, yours truly, Huck Finn. Thanks for joining us for this great American adventure from Mark Twain. Stay tuned for Arthur Conan Doyle's book, The Hound of the Baskervilles, a Sherlock Holmes adventure. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. with a brand new story. Thanks for joining us.